Our series this Christmas, or leading up to Christmas, is called The Visitor. The Earth's greatest visitor was the person we know as Jesus Christ. Now, he's such an awesome person that you can't just give him one name or one title. The Bible gives him many names, many titles. His name, Jesus, his human name, means God's Savior. Christ is the title that means the anointed one, the chosen one. God promised Adam and Eve that he would send a Savior into the world, and that's what Christ means. The word Messiah is a very similar term. He's also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We talked about that last week. He is God and man at the same time. They called him Rabbi because he was a teacher. They called him Healer, many things. He is such an awesome personality that there isn't just one name or one title that sums him up. But there is one title, though, that I think our culture struggles with. And it's because we live in a democratic form of government. And, and as, uh, that's, a, that's the government that you and I experience as Americans. And the title I'm thinking about is the title King. The Bible tells us over and over that Jesus is the King. I studied this this week from the New Testament, all the different verses in the Bible that tell us Jesus is the king. Over and over he said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And in the book of Revelations, in the book of Revelation rather, when he comes again, the title that he is going to wear is king of kings and lord of lords. We see this in the nativity, that he is king. You know, when Jesus was born, God, his father, had planned out a birth that was very unusual. Unusual in the sense that it was humble. If I had been God, I'm glad I'm not, you're glad I'm not God, but if I'd been God, I would have had, you know, Jesus born in the finest hospital in the world with the finest doctors and the most wonderful conditions. In fact, God is not limited time or space. If I'd been God and was bringing my son into the world, I'd have dabbled in a little anachronism and had him born in one of these 21st century, you know, American suburban hospitals. God didn't do that. His son was born to a peasant girl who was married to a, a carpenter, a humble guy, a blue-collar guy. And they were away from home at the time. They were in a little town of Bethlehem because Rome had declared that a census had to be taken and everybody had to go back to the town of his birth. And although Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, God was his father, but he was the man on the record and he had to go back to Bethlehem, and it just turned out that while they were in Bethlehem, Jesus was born there. And not only was he born away from home, there was no place, there was no vacancy in any of the, what we would call hotels or motels. In those days, they were much different, just like little home-like places. There was no vacancy because everybody was there for the census, and, and Jesus wound up being born in a barn, and not one of those really classy kind of barns that you see in these fine Kansas farms. He was born in, in just a shoddy place where cattle fed. And when he was born, you know, nobody had thrown a baby shower for Mary. She just wrapped Jesus' body up tightly in cloth, and they laid him in the feeding trough where the cattle ate. That's how your Savior and my Savior was born into this world. But God did allow one circumstance in the nativity scene of Jesus' birth to hint at his royalty. There were men, the Bible calls them magi or wise men. There, there, there were wise men who came from the east. I think personally, and this is, I'm, I'm getting into a gray area here because I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just giving you my best shot, my best opinion. I think they probably came from Persia. 
Now, tradition kind of messes us up a little bit because tradition says there were three kings and we know the names of those kings. We really, you know, you, know, you can say, I've had people tell me this before, Pastor, I've looked for the three wise men in the Bible and I can't find the three wise men. That's because the Bible doesn't tell us that there were three. There may have been three, there may have been 300, there may have been 3,000, I don't know. And we don't know that they were kings. More likely than being kings, they were king makers. There were wise men who studied and in those days, there was the prevailing thought that when a very important person was going to be born, a king or a Caesar, that there would be some sort of abnormal phenomena, oftentimes some sort of heavenly phenomena in the skies that would accompany the birth of royalty. And so these were men who studied the signs and the writings of the sages, and they, they got into that. Now, I'm gonna, this again, I know I'm really reaching a little bit here, but I'm going to tell you what I honestly believe. And when I get to heaven, if I find out I'm wrong, I'll look you up and I'll apologize. But I'll tell you right now, this is what I think. There was a Jewish prophet who wound up working in four pagan administrations. And he wrote the most interesting of all the Old Testament prophetic books that relate to the coming of Jesus the first time and the coming of Jesus the second time that we're looking for. And the guy's name was Daniel. Daniel would have been situated right in this environment, right where these guys would come along several hundred years later. And the one cool thing about Daniel's book that probably the other prophets don't get into is that Daniel got into a little bit of a timeline. If you were here for glimpse, we talked about that a little bit. So these wise men in Persia, they had all these writings that Daniel had, and probably Daniel had given them insights from the Jewish scriptures. You know, in Numbers chapter 24, 17, there was the prophecy that said there would be a star, and they might have had that, and on top of that, they would have had Daniel's timeline, and they were probably doing the math, and they said, you know what, we better expect something big right about now. And at one point, they looked, and they saw that the Bible records to be a star, and they said, we're going to chase after that, we're going to go after that. And they did. They made a difficult journey, went all the way to, to Judea, and they, they did probably what would have been normal to us. They, they thought, you know, Jerusalem is the capital. If there's a king being born, let's go to the capital city because surely everybody's going to be pumped up. You know, we saw this a long way away, and when we get there, everybody's going to be really pumped about this. And they get to Jerusalem, and nobody knows anything. And they were asking people, you know, where, where, they went around, the Bible says, asking people, where, where is he, this, this born king of the Jews? And finally, they wind up in the presence of King Herod, and they're asking him the question, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And the Bible says it just got Jerusalem all upset. There's a reason for that. There was a king at that time, Herod, but you should, you should understand he was not born to be king. There were 12 tribes in Israel. That was all laid out for us, really, in Genesis 49, when Jacob blessed his 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes. And in Genesis chapter 49, through Jacob, God decreed which tribe that the kings would come from. That was the tribe of Judah. God would eventually put his man on the throne, David. This week in Power Lines, we're going to begin studying the life of David, and we're going to have an awesome time as we do that. David was God's chosen king, and God made a promise to David. He said, David, if you'll walk in my ways, and if you'll follow me, I'll make sure, now listen, hang with me for just a moment. I'll make sure that one of your descendants is on the throne forever. Not for 300 years, not for 1,000 years, but forever. 
Now, if there would be a king born in Israel, how would he have to be born? Well, he'd have to be of the tribe of Judah, right? No doubt about that. And beyond that, he would have to be a descendant of King David, or else he would have no right to the throne, and God would have lied when he made a promise to David. That's why. How many times have you started out to read the New Testament, some of you? You get over to Matthew, you think, wow, I'm going to read through the New Testament. You know, I mean, this is my goal for the new year. You open up chapter 1, it's like so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And after a while, your eyes are just doing this number. They're knocking on each other. And you're saying, why did God put this in the Bible? And then you get over into Luke. And all again, they, so, they beget so-and-so, they beget so-and-so, and they beget so-and-so. What's really interesting is that when you study those two genealogies, they're pretty similar, you know. Um, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's goes all the way back, you know, to, the, to, to trace the Jewish nation. It, they're pretty similar until they get to David. Because the genealogy in Matthew goes through David's son Solomon, who was king. The genealogy in Luke goes through David's son Nathan. There's a reason for that. Because Matthew, the genealogy in Matthew really goes through Joseph. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but he was Jesus' father on record. Mary, on the other hand, was Jesus' biological mother, and Mary's genealogy goes all the way back to David's son Nathan. So what God is establishing in those genealogies where you get so-and-so, beget so-and-so, beget so-and-so, and you think, man, when am I going to get through with this and get to the real story? What you're seeing at that point is you're seeing God prove that his son Jesus has a right to the throne both biologically and legally. And so these guys, these wise men, these magi, come into town and they're asking everybody, where is the one who is born king of the Jews. As I said, Herod had no right to the throne because Herod was not even a Jew and he certainly would not have been of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of, of a guy named Esau. And so somebody will say, well, Mark, how do you wind up on the throne? Well, <clears throat> you ever see somebody get a job because they knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody? Well, that's how he got on the throne. Rome ruled the world and they allowed, <clears throat> they allowed puppet kings in places. You know, they tried to put somebody that was of the nationality of the region on the throne so the people would feel pretty good about having their own guy or their own woman there ruling the nation. But really, it was Rome who pulled all the strings. And Herod's family had been kind of thick with the emperor, and he wound up being on the throne. Not a Jew, certainly not of the tribe of, of Judea. And he was a bad guy. Herod killed. Think about this. You know, some of us have heard the story about how, in the Bible, how Herod decreed that all the boy babies under the age of two were to be killed because he was trying to kill Jesus, you know, God had come to Joseph and said, get out of here and take Jesus to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill him. And when Herod came there, he killed all the boy babies under two. And, and people read that and say, wow, that's so horrific. I can't believe anybody would have the, the heartlessness to do that. But what you should understand was that Herod had killed two of his own sons. The Greek word for pig, hus, is very close to the Greek word for son, huios. There's only one letter of difference. And the people had a saying in those days that it was safer to be Herod's hus, his pig, than his huias, his son. <laughs> he killed one of his wives. He was a bad guy. But when the wise men came, they said, we want to know where is the one who was born with a right to rule? I've given you that obscure history lesson to get to one point today. You know, the truth of the matter is, Jesus is king. He is king of the universe and he wants to be king of your life. Oftentimes, we allow people and things to rule our lives who have no legitimate claim to the throne. 
I watch people get into bad relationships, abusive relationships. And before long, somebody's on the throne of their life who's like Herod. No right to rule. No, no good intentions. Sometimes people allow fear to rule in their lives. Jesus came into our world to be king, to push the Herods off the throne, to rule and reign legitimately. So I want you to think about that this morning. That is who Jesus is. He came to be king. King of the Jews, the Bible would later say he is king of the world, and Revelation will say that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, at the beginning of this message, and even as I got ready for it for weeks and months now, I've been concerned about one thing. How do you talk to Americans about a king? Because our experience with kings is either bad or there's no experience at all. We're over 300 years into what we know of as a Republican form of democracy. We rule the people. And our experience with kings is we pushed, we pushed England away and said, we don't want to be under your authority. We don't want to be part of your kingdom. We're going to have a Republican form of democracy. And now we're, we're in that experiment. And it's been a good experiment for us as Americans. But we don't know much about kings. Most of what we know is bad. We know about nations that have had kings or dictators, and it's been, it's been ugly. So let's talk about that for a few moments. Somebody could say, I don't know that I want a king. I believe in, in ruling my own life. Or I believe that when we get to heaven, we all ought to take a vote about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Okay, think about this for just a moment. I want you to think about three things about Jesus ruling and reigning in our lives. First of all, if 6,000 years of recorded human history have taught us anything, it's taught us that there is no perfect form of government, right? Because if the government is too strong and too powerful, then abuse takes place. The old saying is, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, that's right. So if, you, you know, we, we've watched communism and we've watched other totalitarian regimes where there is a tight structure in place. And yes, you have order, but there's no freedom. And after a while, that kind of system will implode. Somebody will say, well, Mark, I know the perfect government. Perfect government is when there, is no, when there are no rules, when there is no government. I, trust me, you would not want to live in a climate of anarchy. I mean, we've, we've watched a few examples. Anarchy is always short-lived. I mean, look at the French Revolution. Anarchy is always short-lived. It's always a dangerous environment. And usually, anarchy is followed by totalitarianism. Now, here we are in the United States, and somebody will say, Mark, we've discovered democracy. It is the perfect form of government. How do you really feel about it? We struggle, don't we? I mean, after all, think about this. I mean, don't we sort of go back and forth? You show me any democracy, and, and oftentimes there will be a swing. It'll be liberal at one point. It'll swing very conservative and kind of go back and forth. And there will be one party that gets in power, and after a while, you know, we, we want the other party, and we want the other party, and it goes back and forth. Scholars at the end of the last century, scholars were almost united on the greatest leader of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. I mean, I don't know whether he is or not, but scholars are pretty well united that he was the most significant, the greatest leader of the 20th century. Why? Because of the way he led the world and led Europe, England, during World War II. But do you realize in 1946, England turned him out of power? Even though he's considered to be the greatest leader in world history, one year after the end of World War II, they decided, we want a different kind of prime minister. That's just human nature. Here in America, we're a nation of laws. Laws get made by Congress. You elect 435 representatives. We have one from our district. 100 senators. We elect a president. He appoints his executive administration. He also suggests or appoints or, or sends up for nomination 
nine justices for the Supreme Court. Those are, those are uh, approved by the Senate. So if a law is going to get passed in the United States, some congressman, some senator has to say, I've got an idea. This will make our nation better. Here is the law. And then at that point, it's going to be kicked around by a whole lot of people. It's going to go through all kinds of committees, and different congressmen, senators are going to weigh in on it. It's going to matter if you're from an agricultural state or an oil state or an engineer or, or a um, um, state that produces goods. It's going, to, it's going to go through all kinds of review, and, and then one, one congressman will say, well, I don't see anything here from my state, but if you'll add this and I'll vote for your bill, and after a while, the vote comes and the, and the bill passes. And then the other house, the Senate has to weigh in on it, but it takes 60 senators for a supermajority to prevent a filibuster, and so it goes in goes into all kinds of discussion, and finally, if the two bills don't agree, they have to go through conference committee, and then the president has to sign it, and if he vetoes it, it's going to take two-thirds majority to override the veto, and then the Supreme Court's going to weigh in if they think it could be unconstitutional. And in the process of all that, we look at that and say, wow, I mean, where's common sense sometimes? Don't you feel that way? And I'm not being critical because I believe that is the finest form of human government the world has ever known. But all I'm trying to tell you is even at its best, human government struggles. I truly believe, and I don't know how to articulate this, but I truly believe that one of the reasons that God allows us to experience futility with human government is just so we will know that this world was made for Jesus Christ to serve as its king. We, we talked in the Glimpse series about something called the Millennium. The millennium is a thousand-year period of time. I believe it will happen at the end of the, the era that we're living in right now. Jesus Christ will come back in the rapture, and all who are believers will go to be with God. Seven years later, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will rule for a thousand years on this earth, and we'll get to be part of that. One of the reasons why God, I believe, has got that thousand-year period, because, you know, I struggle with that every once in a while. If we're going to live forever, why does God stick this thousand-year period here? Why doesn't God just let us go immediately into eternity? I just believe that's because God wants to show this world how awesome it would be if Jesus Christ was really the ruler. The second reason why it's very important that Jesus is our king, and somebody can say, well, Mark, I, I really struggle with having a king because I don't like the idea of somebody else setting up my life. I know that's true. I'm that way too. I push back against that. One of the reasons why we push back is because our experience with human authority has taught us one thing, that even at its best, human authority will seek its own interest, whether it's a parent or a teacher or the law or the military or whatever. Even at its finest, Human authority will at some point seek its own interest. And that's why we push back against human authority. Because we're concerned. Because why should I obey someone who's not seeking my best interest? It's our experience with other human beings that causes us to push back against the idea of Jesus being our king. At least just a little bit. But I want you to think about three things. Number one, Jesus is a different kind of king because he loved you enough to die for you. Most of the time, kings don't die for slaves. Slaves die for kings. Slaves are considered expendable. But Jesus Christ loved us enough to die in our place. You know, if somebody loves me enough to die for me, I'm glad to have their influence in my life. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. There's another reason why you ought to think about Jesus being your king. Not only does he love you enough to die for you, he has the power to do anything. You know, we, we sometimes complain about our political leaders because they bump up against the end of their power. 
But Jesus never does. When Jesus is your king, you have a king who can do absolutely anything. He is your king. He loved you enough to die for you. He can do anything. But here's the really awesome part. Before I get to that, let me just say this. Suppose you became a good friend with Prince Charles or with Queen Elizabeth. And you went to Buckingham Palace, and they passed you off and said, this is my friend, this is Mark, he's my friend. You would enjoy that a little bit, but you would very clearly understand if you walked up and down the hallways of Buckingham Palace, you might be a friend of the queen, you might be a friend of the prince, but you would feel the difference between being a friend and actually being part of the family. There's a difference between being liked by royalty and actually being royalty. With that in mind, let me give you the third thing. When Jesus becomes your king, he not only becomes your friend, he adopts you into the family of God and you actually become royalty. The Bible says he has made us a royal family. So that when you accept Jesus Christ, you actually become part of the royal family. You know what? I don't mind having a, being, I don't mind having a king when I can be part of the royal family. Here's what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Scripture says that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you become an heir, H-E-I-R, you become an heir of God. Some of you, you've inherited money. Maybe your parents passed on and left you in their will. Or maybe a, a relative, an aunt or uncle, left you as part and left you in their will. And you received an inheritance. You sat down in a lawyer's office and you got a letter from a lawyer. And it said you're going to receive this inheritance. Now also some of you, are part of a family where several of you siblings received an inheritance. Let's just say your sister, your brother inherited money with you. They become a joint heir with you, heir to the same estate. Here's what the Bible says. When you accept Jesus Christ, you become an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. Jesus is God's son. He rightfully is the heir to everything in God's estate. But when you accept Christ, you become a joint heir with Jesus. That's what the judgment is about. When we stand before God to find out what our inheritance is going to be. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Hey, I've preached for a long time. And I've passed this church for a long time. I know human response. Somebody's out there saying, that's too good to be true. You know, our experience in this world reminds us every once in a while that there are things that just sound too good to be true. No interest, no payment till 2012, free. And you know, we hear things that just, just don't ring right, and we say, that sounds too good to be true. See, I, I'm just trying to preach to us often this morning that our experience in this world messes us up in our relationship with God, and nothing will mess you and me up in our relationship with God like the statement, that's too good to be true. Because God is, listen, God is always telling us things that sound too good to be true. From Genesis chapter 3, you know, or actually earlier than that, chapter 2, where God said, you can have every fruit in this garden to Adam and Eve, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, all the way to the Revelation, chapter 22, where the Bible tells us that the streets are paved with gold, it's an awesome city, and there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, from Genesis to Revelation, God says stuff that just sounds too good to be true, and all in the middle, things like, I will remember your sins no more, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that freely we can receive the grace of God, which washes our sins away, and this is one of those things where the Bible says that we are actually adopted into God's family. Somebody could say, that sounds too good to be true. But I got news for you. It is good, and it is true. 
I don't mind having him for a king at all. I mean, because he loved me enough to die for me. He can do absolutely anything, and he actually adopts me into the family of God so that I become a prince and you become princes and princesses of God, join heirs with Jesus Christ. Well, it could be that I'm just talking to somebody and you just say, Mark, you're not selling me. I just don't want to be in a kingdom. I run my own life. And I just don't know about Jesus being king. I am struggling with that. Well, here's the clincher. Everybody is in a kingdom. You're not evaluating whether you're going to be in a kingdom or not be in a kingdom. It's which kingdom are you going to be in. Everybody's in a kingdom. There are only two. The Bible tells us this. The Bible says that through Christ, God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. There's nobody here but us today, so can I just tell you something I did one time that was really terrible? I was in the sixth grade, and I was getting ready to go into middle school. We called it junior high then. And there was a time when they were giving um, uh, achievement tests, and it was one of those things where, you know, you read the questions and you, like, filled in the little, you know, took your pencil and filled in a little circle. And we'd already taken one set of achievement tests, and now we're taking another set of achievement tests. And so it was kind of this deal, you know, I'm supposed to read, I'm supposed to, you know, circle, fill in, fill in the, the, the dot there. But the only thing is, I, I, I'm, I'm a reader. I love to read. I can't even, I mean, if I go to the restaurant, if I'm by myself, I've got to be reading something. And I love to read. I'm just, you know, I inhale reading material. love to read. And I had this book in the sixth grade that I really, really liked, and it was very interesting. I don't even remember what the book was, but I knew. And the teacher had said, when you get through with the test, if you get through early, you can just read. So I'm thinking, wow, that sounds good to me. And I'm thinking, you know what, I don't, you know, all these circles here, you could just fill them in at random if you wanted to. I'm telling you, there's just nobody here but us and the television camera. So I'm just thinking... I'm thinking, that's what I'm going to do. And I did that. I am ashamed to admit it, but I mean, I was just getting rid of those achievement tests lightning fast and getting to my book. What I did not know was that we were taking those achievement tests to find out what kind of class we were going to be in when we went to junior high. Were we going to be in the really, really smart class called Accelerated? Were we going to be in the Honors class? Were we going to be in the Normal class? Or were we going to be in the class of Slow Learners? I don't know what the euphemism for it is today. I got to junior high, and I, I mean, here I am, I'm an A student, and I find myself in all these classes, and after a little while, you know, one by one, the teacher would say, <clears throat> Mark, would you come up here and bring your attendance card? Uh, you're being transferred out of this class, you're being transferred, go to this class. I mean, I went through about six or seven of those, where after about two or three weeks, I got transferred out of all these classes. Now, that's what salvation is. God comes along to you and says, you don't belong in that class. I mean, you've done wrong stuff. That's why you're part of this kingdom. You're born in this kingdom, but God has a new attendance card for you. He wants to take, you take your attendance card out of the kingdom of darkness and take it over here to the kingdom of light where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. But mark it down. You're in a kingdom. You say, but Mark, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm sleeping with who I want to sleep with. I'm shooting up whatever I want to shoot. I'm running with who I want to run with. I'm lying and cheating and doing all kinds of stuff. I'm having a good time. This is my life. I, trust me, if your life was a kingdom, if you, and, and if your life was, you know, a building, 
if you got to the end of the hallway, to the total end of the hallway of the kind of life you're talking about, you would find the devil is sitting behind the desk and he is pulling the strings. Folks, I'm not trying to say this to be preachy or judgmental, but anybody who lives in the kingdom of darkness, even though he or she may think they're doing their own thing, it isn't going to end well and it ain't making you happy now. What I've discovered is when I get into the kingdom of God's son, Jesus, his kingdom makes sense. I mean, his kingdom blesses me. I don't have any problem following him because what he does as a king is not in his own self-interest. What he does is always for God's glory and my best interest. And beyond that, I'm already in a kingdom that's never going to end. God promised David, he said, my, my, your heir is going to be on the throne forever. And it's true. You know, I, I thought when I was getting ready for this message, where would I go in the Bible to find the best description of Jesus' kingdom the way it is today? You know, we all know it's going to be awesome when he actually is king, when he sits on the throne in Jerusalem and he's, he's ruling the world for a thousand years. I mean, it's truly going to be awesome. We're going to be heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. We're going to love that. But how do I talk about Jesus' kingdom today in 2006, December? I got some help from a thief. You remember when Jesus died on the cross? He died between two thieves. One of them never changed. Some people never learn, right? But the other thief, it was like, you know, God was just talking to him. And his insight is absolutely astounding, and it's helpful to you and me. Because when he prayed to accept Jesus, here's what he prayed. He said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's an odd thing to say to a dying man. I mean, to a guy who's going to lose his life today, you don't expect him to have a kingdom. He's about to die. But God had talked to this thief, and this thief had gotten it down. And he's smarter than, than many, many people are today because this thief said, I know you're going to die, and you've got a kingdom, and you're a king, and it's coming. But he's saying, what I want to do is I want to enroll right now. And that's what I want to challenge you to do. This world, broken in the box, there's never going to be a perfect form of human government. We ought to be great citizens. We ought to be the best Americans we can be. We ought to be the finest Kansans we can be. And we ought to be the best citizens of the world that we can possibly be. But at the end of the day, we know human government isn't going to work out. Jesus is coming. What we say to him is, Lord, we know you're going to have a kingdom. We just want to be part of it now. When Lance and the team lead us in worship, that's what we're doing. We're giving praise to our king. We're coming together. We're celebrating that we're part of a kingdom. We're not just Kansans. We're not just Americans. But we are part of a kingdom, and we've come to celebrate that. We're getting in on it early. Here's what I want you to think about today. Two things, and I'll be through. Number one, is Jesus your king? Have you invited him to be your king in your life? I mean, first of all, have you just embraced the fact that he is, that he is king? Elvis Presley used to be called the king. And people called him that. You know, that's just part of the nomenclature of, of, if you're an Elvis fan, you know that. I mean, but one day he was singing, and there were a bunch of college-age girls who had gotten seats together. They held up a sign that said, Elvis, you're the king. And he stopped the song in the middle. He said, I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. Have you reached that place? 
where you can say, I'm not the king, Jesus is the king. But there's something much more fundamental than that, and that is the embracing of Jesus as your personal king.